I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rough Draft. I'm your host, Reza Aslan. You know, on this program, we've had a lot of people who have written books and we've had a lot of musicians who write songs. We've had some people who do both of those things, but we've never had a guest who did both at the same time. Our guest on the pod this week is Mikel Jolet. He is an author, an activist, a musician. He's the frontman for the rock and roll band The Airborne Toxic Event. And for his newest project, he has written a book-album combination called Hollywood Park. The book is a memoir about his experience growing up in a cult called Synanon, which some of you may be familiar with. We'll talk a lot about that on the program. But he's also taken that book and created a companion album, also called Hollywood Park, full of incredible music that I just absolutely adore. I mean, this album, I can't stop listening to it. And... We're actually lucky enough that he will perform a song from the album for us uh, on his acoustic guitar. You know, going back and forth between genres is difficult in the best of times. But one of the reasons why we wanted Mikkel on the show, especially for you burgeoning songwriters out there, is we really wanted to dig in deep about the process of writing a song. How does that happen? Is it lyrics first? Is it music first? Do they come together? When you're writing an album that is a companion piece to a, a, a piece of prose that you're also writing, how do you kind of keep things together? How do you make sure that the themes and the subjects run parallel to each other, even though both of those things, the, the album and the book, have to be treated on their own and separately. This is the challenge that Mikkel faced, and by the fact that the album is remarkable and the book is a New York Times bestseller, he has succeeded in spades. So we're going to talk about that, we're going to talk about life, we're going to talk about politics. Uh, Mikkel is a very politically active musician, like many other musicians are nowadays. And we're going to talk about what it means to create a concept album, the first one that he's ever tried doing. All of that and more in my conversation with Mikkel Jolet. Hope you enjoy. First of all, congratulations, man, uh, on this book, a New York Times bestseller. How does that how does that feel? I, it's really weird. I, I, I kept getting all these, um, I kept doing all this stuff with it and the book kept kind of growing and I just kept thinking like, it's such a sad book and so <laughs> vulgar at times that I'm just like, why, why, like, I just, I think of things like that being for, I don't know, cookbooks, maybe, I don't know, political book, like a different <laughs> type of person than like me talking about, you know, hippies in the 80s that went to Oregon to hide. Or whatever yeah. it is that, that it is. And so it's like I, I was surprised and pleasantly surprised. And I, I will say I worked really hard on it. So um, I guess, you know, when I was writing it, I felt like um, I was really onto something and it felt special uh, when I was I was in it. You know, you're in a zone sometimes when you write a story. And so that that felt yeah. good. And I worked so hard at it. But 
Yeah, it feels good. It feels weird. It feels like uh, I should do another one. I should write a novel next. <laughs> you should have, yeah, keep going. It's yeah. not bad. Um, the book is this kind of beautiful distillation of self-exploration, confusion, childhood, agony, uh, a damaged upbringing. There are recipes in there. No, I'm just so kidding. good for. No I was going to say so good at dinner parties. <laughs> yeah, great for dinner Those parties. Are you looking for a light uh, banter. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I like about it is that. I think maybe some people out there who know you as a rock star are like, oh, rock star wrote a book. I mean, it's like, don't we have those yeah. already? Yeah. But this is not this is not a rock star memoir. Well, first right? of all, this there is, are no rock stars except else. Jack White. That, that just doesn't <laughs> exist. The rest of us are just like guys in bands or people in bands. You know, there's not rock stars. There's I'm a, not a rock star. I have Jack a house. White. I have two kids. I live with my wife. We're just hunkered down like everyone else. <laughs> so there's, there's Jack White because he embodies it. He really embodied it. The rest of us were not rockstar. We're just, we're just, we're in a, I'm in a touring band, I would say. I'm a troubadour, maybe. You're a, you're a working musician. I'm a working musician. Yeah. You're a working musician, which is like, uh, like a dream come true, period. Uh, My 12 year old self is very me, happy about how, did, how things turned out. How, how did, how did the sort of idea of writing this book come across? I mean, it's important for people to understand that. You are a writer. I mean, you you wrote nonfiction, journalism, fiction, um, and then you became a musician and a, a singer. Yeah. So it's not like you were just a musician who was like, "Hey, maybe I'll write a book and see how it goes." Yeah. Um, so you you had this inside of you for a while, but but tell me about the the genesis of of sitting down and saying, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my childhood." Well, on, my hope down. is that you didn't need to know anything about you know, me or my career or my band. Uh, and we're just an indie rock band. We're not a particularly big indie rock band. Arcade Fire is a big indie rock band, you know. Um, we're just a touring Six band. Six albums. That's not, I mean, come on. No, listen, I'm not trying to diminish it. I'm very proud of the work we've done, you know, but it's like no one gives a shit about if I write a memoir based on that part of my life. What I was trying to do was write about, uh, write a story that you could read. I wanted it to be a piece of literature. Um, in, in addition to, I didn't want it to be some like terrible memoir by someone who took himself too seriously. I also mm. didn't want it to just be a memoir. I was interested in using some of the, let's call them devices of fiction. Uh, the book has an unreliable narrator. The book has magical realism. These are big no-nos in the world of memoir. If you read like Art of Memoir by Mary right. Carr, like number one is make sure they always know you're telling the truth. And it's like page two, my mom turns into a bird yeah. and flies away. Like there's yeah, just yeah, lies exactly. all over the place. And and I did that on purpose, um, partially because it was just felt more exciting. So you're following your instincts as a writer. And partially because I I started to notice that these they felt real because that's how it felt to be a child. That's how it actually mm. felt. And then, you know, if we're going to be a little more profounder, pointy-headed about it, I think that's probably the way we organize our identities. We don't we don't simply organize our identities based on sort of logic and historical events. We are we are unreliable narrators of our own existence. We have mm -hmm. a lot of magical realism in our lives. That explains totems. That explains a lot of religion, as you've written about extensively. That explains sort of mythologies across cultures. That explains, I don't know, astrology. Like, we, we organize our identities around magical realistic events, ideas, thoughts, metaphor, which is not typically considered the province of memoir, um, is the province of storytelling. Storytelling is the province of identity. So I just felt, fuck it, like, let's, let's go deep yeah. into how I thought about the world as a child. And let's, you know, let's have people turn into animals and let's mm -hmm. burrow beneath the ground by a thousand feet at one point in order to be able to talk to the future. At one point, I'm literally in dialogue with the future self writing the book. Like, it's all right. fucked up. But, it, but I think on the page, it makes sense. 
and as I was writing it, and you know, there's some actually, I'm just being a little coy. Like there are some literary reasons for why I did what I did, but um, well, uh, we're going to talk about those literary reasons. <laughs> Uh, you, you brought up Mary Carr. Um, I wonder, uh, are, are there memoirs out there that like were influential to you? I mean, did you read The Liars Club? Yeah, you know, I read all of them. I read all the all the yeah. classics, all the modern, even the, even like the even the rock star memoirs. No, because I, I don't care about them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you didn't read. Uh, you didn't read. I didn't uh, read Bruce's Hattie book. Smith? I didn't read Two Hearts. I didn't. You know, I, none of that. I, I uh, first of all, I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan, but I want the Bruce Springsteen of the mind. I don't want. I don't want to actually come to terms with any. I want Bruce Springsteen, such a fantastical figure in my mind that can never be surpassed. That I knew I'd only be disappointed. So I was like, <laughs> let's just stick with this sort of like Ben Kenobi the creation. Yeah, he's a Ben Kenobi figure in my head. Like he right, appears right. As, a, as a you know, he's like a ghost on the side. He's like, Mikael, stop fucking up. And then I'm like, oh shit, I'm fucking up. And then I and then oh, I think, sorry, okay, Bruce. what would Bruce do? And then I, I can I can correct. And I knew if I read it, it, it you know and. And I was interested in, um, you know, the memoirs that had touched me. So, you know, I know why the Caged Bird sings, first of all. Mm-hmm. That book is like, you think you got a book? You don't have a book. You don't have a fucking <laughs> yeah. book. You think you have a book? You think you know how to write? You don't know how to write. You, you, you know how to write when every page is special. This book, every page <laughs> is special. Every page has a bit of poetry, wisdom, storytelling, insight. Uh, just a fantastic paragraph that bowls you over. So that book, Angela's Ashes, um, This Boy's Life, those both of those books were about scheming preteens, scheming children, you know, all the ways in which we as children lie to yeah. ourselves, lie to other people, you know, steal, and and we're also dealing yeah. with crazy challenging situations that the adults put on us. So that that was very influential. And then a couple of novels, uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Yeah. Um, she's like Roger Federer or like Michael Jordan. Like she's no holes in her game. Mm-hmm. Like she's just... Mm-hmm. I'm glad I came to that book later in life. I never, you know, I didn't study it or anything. And um, it's just so mysterious and weird and probing and vexing. It's probably my favorite book. And she's probably my favorite writer. And and, and it just reminded me to not talk down to my reader. Let the world yeah. that is as mysterious and weird and, you know, frankly, complex uh, and funny at times and strange as it exists in my head. Let that be what the reader sees. Don't, don't dumb it down. Don't try to put yeah. yourself on a stage. And then the the things they carried by Tim o, Tim O'Brien, which is um, mm-hmm. a book about Vietnam soldiers, uh, that's sort of a memoir, sort of a novel. So those those were kind of the big hits for me when writing this book. I, I read about 150 books and took a lot of notes and wrote a lot of essays trying to get sort of formed down and thinking about technique and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's funny that you, the the books that you mentioned, like you were saying about this book, Hollywood Park, do bend the genre a little bit, do play with it, the expectations of the the reader, the multiple points of view. One of the things that you do in this book, you kind of brought it up already, is like the basically the first third of it is deliberately written from the perspective of you as a child. Right. And, you know, for for all the the writers out there, right, there's a difference between point of view and perspective. Point of view is what the eye sees. Perspective is what the mind knows. And there is a a way to create. Hello, Professor Aslan. Can I? I do do this for a living. I just want to be Um, in like the front row with my notepad, like down. (laughs) If I was a sophomore in college, that would be on my wall. (laughs) And well, so but this is what's fascinating is that there are certain writers who are good enough to really play tricks with point of view and perspective by marrying them yeah. sometimes. And so the first third of this book is from the perspective of you as a child. So many memoirs are about the adult writing about 
the past. In yeah. fact, that's what memoir means. It's a it's about it's about capturing a moment of time yeah. from this different perspective. But you eschew your adult perspective and you lock us into the perspective of the child. And so what that does, you brought up an unreliable narrator. Yeah, it creates a little bit of an unreliable narrator, but what's even more fascinating is that it creates a sense uh, in which the, the the reader is unmoored, like the reader doesn't know what's going on. Like we know only what this little child knows, right. right? And so everything is so mysterious and confusing and nothing makes sense. And the adults around him are just all insane and the world is insane. And because you've locked us there, we can't help but feel that same sense. And, and one of the things that it does, and this, this is where, I, where I'm getting to, is that it allows you to kind of uncover this buried history, mm-hmm. right? This, this, this secret truth. Um, and to sift through all of these like false narratives you've been fed as a child. And we're going to talk about what that means in a moment here, but all the false narratives you were fed about who you are, what you actually think, what you actually believe. Um, and so I guess the, 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 the heart of the question that I want to get to is when you do something like that, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a clever trick and you pull it off beautifully. Thanks. But when you do something like that, when you, when you give equal weight to what you, Mikkel, as a little kid thought was happening mm-hmm. and what you, Mikkel, as an adult now know what's happening. You give both of those things kind of equal weight in the book. Is it harder to write about uh, the reality that you know was happening or is it harder to write about what you were told was the reality of the time? I think right, that your experience with it is the reality, and that's the whole point. That's how we understand stories. We are never objective about our own stories, never. And mm. the best jokes that we know have a perspective. The best stories that we've ever heard have a perspective. And so the most powerful way for you to understand, like, okay, so one of the pivotal scenes in the book is, you know, I come outside to watch um, on the street in Berkeley. We've escaped the cult. We've been living on the run, and our roommate comes home in his VW van, and he gets beat into a coma, you know, five feet in front of me. That that was yeah. a really hard moment in my life. I really wanted to capture it um, on, in the book as it happened. Now, I've read about that story in the press. I've read about myself being <laughs> involved in that story in the press because yeah. it mentions a little boy in the um, Point Reyes light piece about that, which is the newspaper that won a Pulitzer writing about Synanon, which is the cult that we escaped. Um, I've heard that story from friends, and I did a long interview with Phil uh, Ritter, who was the our roommate, and I did that contemporaneous with the guy who with was writing beaten. the book. The guy yeah. was beaten, so I I knew the facts on the ground. Now, if I now I just told you the story right now, guy was beaten in front into a coma, five feet in front of me. I was five years old, um, nearly five years old, and um, that um, that that doesn't tell you what happened. If we're hanging out and we're friends, and I tell you. Um, that I wasn't allowed to go outside. And it was because I was told that the bad men were going to come. And I had this, I didn't know who my dad was uh, because we didn't have parents and we lived in an orphanage. And then we had to escape. And then I, we moved in with a roommate and that roommate was kind to me. So there was this warmth 
And even though he wasn't a father figure, there was a father-like energy because I was just so desperate for a fatherly figure in my life that I was just really happy to see him whenever he came home. And one day when I'm finally let out to play, I come, he comes home with groceries, we smile, our eyes lock, and two men with nylon masks on walk up behind him and hit him over the head. And he falls over like a stack of Lincoln Logs. Just immediately just fell. And he starts screaming. And I'm t I don't know what to do. My brother's across the street. He's with a group of kids. They've all stopped what they're doing. And they're just, they start beating him. There's blood yeah. mingling with the gravel on the driveway. There's um, my brother and I trying to figure out what to do. I'm, I'm hiding. Eventually one of the men rears up and says, where are Mikel and Tony? Because the bad men that we've been hiding from have finally come. Isn't that more what the story is? And so yeah. my point is, and I'm not trying to be trite, like that is actually a very traumatic thing that happened. My point is I always wanted the reader to know the emotional truth as I went through it. And I was working from the um, sort of theory that it didn't matter what the objective truth was now in this kind of 40-year-old elegiac kind of way where I'm looking back on life and going, well, I've now, you know, I don't, I don't care. What, what matters to the story is how did I feel? What did I think? What did I imagine what was happening? And then how did this affect, let's say, the ontological reality of my life? And those are things I thought about in every single scene in the book. And if, if given, it, given that perspective, the story becomes way more vital, way more real. And if I can follow, if I can bring you as a reader through 40 years of that, then I think I can present to you what I try to do at the end of the book, which is some conclusions about um, my life having survived some of that and some things yeah. I sort of know to be true, some decisions that I've made. And we can be friends intellectually, which is what a book is, a good memoir. Hi, you want to be my friend? You want to know how life was for me in this world? Let me tell you. And that's my goal yeah. in the book. So I, I threw out the idea of truth on page you know, one. I don't care. I care about the emotional truth. Everything happened. There's, no, there's nothing made up in the book. But in terms of the perspective, what mattered to me was, you know, and, and I, I try to clue the reader in like, you know, when some of the things that aren't true aren't true. They, they know it's not true. Yeah. I'm repeating things. That aren't true but then that's sort of like that's the journey of kids who survived emotional abuse is they were told lies and they slowly unpacked those lives over a lifetime and then they came to to new conclusions and so that was the perspective that i tried to establish in the book and try to be a little revolutionary is the wrong word but let's say um rebellious or maybe experimental where like i just completely went the other direction of like i don't care what actually happened. I care very much about what I thought was happening. Yeah. And for you to go through that with me as a reader and know what my experience was as I slowly piece this puzzle together in my life. Can we talk about the bad men uh, yeah. and, and the cult that you escaped yeah. sending on? You, you, you mentioned it. I'm sure you know, you've been asked about it a thousand times. So it, instead of just me asking questions, it, can you just explain to everyone what, what was sending on and, and your um, sort of experience of it. It's annoying because you don't want to have to take responsibility for your parents' annoying decisions. <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't choose to, like, oh, I'm born in a cult. And you're like, I didn't fucking chose to be in a cult. <laughs> I'm an Obama Democrat. I'm a pragmatist, <laughs> maybe to a fault. Like, <laughs> my point is that I'm not like that. I don't, I wouldn't, I believe in institutions. I believe in turning institutional power to benefit others. My parents weren't that. My parents, my father was a, um, uh, 
he had he had uh, he had had a life of crime, let's say, and he was mm-hmm. in prison. He he was started disorganized crime. Disorganized crime. We used to ask him like, "Dad, is it like organized crime?" He's like, "Yeah, more like disorganized crime." But from the time he was fifteen on, my father was a criminal, um, and uh, for about ten years, that's what he did, and he had a huge rap sheet, um, and you know, uh, he only made it to like eighth grade. Um, and, uh, while he was in Chino, he's locked up in Chino prison, uh, for years. Uh, he, he's got a heroin addiction and when he got out, he needed to get clean. And one day he overdosed and there's a song about this on the record. Um, he overdosed and then someone dropped him off at this drug rehabilitation facility called Synanon. And what it was, was a place where, uh, drug addicts lived together in order to try and collectively, you know, kick, uh, uh, their addictions and, this was like a heroin crisis happening in the 60s and early 70s. The way yeah. there's like an opioid crisis now, that was the opioid crisis of the day. So it worked. It was great. Um, and then uh, for a while, all these addicts living together and screaming at each other in this kind of attack group therapy called The Game, and people got clean. And then um, the lifestylers moved in, which we call the squares. You could call them the hippies. I don't know. Um, hmm. And my mom was a square. She was a, a master's in Berkeley uh, free speech activist. Um, who, you know, was part of the sit-ins at Berkeley and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, Mario Salvo and all that kind of like, you got to lay mm-hmm. down on the gears of society yeah. until you stop the machine because the machine, it's like some of the best rhetoric you've ever heard, by the way. If you're going to be an activist, you know, study free speech <laughs> in Berkeley just for the rhetorical devices. They're tremendous. <laughs> um, so she, um, she moved in to change the world. And then the place got this idea that it was going to change the world. And uh, it became a cult because uh, there was a lot of isolated power um, and the power fell into the hands of one person, this guy Chuck Dieterich, who was kind of the leader, and they started doing some really crazy stuff, breaking up marriages, uh, forcing vasectomies, forcing ab- abortions, violence, which was it started as a nonviolent place, became violent. They bought like a thousand guns at one point, roughing yeah. people up, attempted murder, you name it. Um, and that's when, uh, and then the worst thing I would say that happened was um, they had a place where they put all the children. And at six months old, all the children were taken away from their parents and put into an orphanage. And that's where my brother and I were raised when we were there. We yeah. really lived in an orphanage. That was that was sort of the big thing about Synanon, right, as it became a cult, was this notion that children should have no parents, right? That they should be, you know, a, a child of the universe, as, right. as as it was put. And the goal was quite clearly to create um, a new kind of person right. who didn't need parents. Like that was the that was the key that we can create a new kind of human being who is utterly detached from the past, it, uh, doesn't need parents, and can just rely on themselves. And I I always find that part of the cult so fascinating for a whole host of reasons one because i'm curious what kind of person that is you know like what what kind of person is it who is utterly detached from the past and the legacy and also because i kind of get it a little bit you know i mean for look for for a lot of us who have had very fraught um relationships with their parents, right? Um, and who uh, feel like, you know, we carry an enormous amount of baggage, you know, from our upbringing and from from toxic relationships with, you know, our, our family members. You know, part of it is that we do when we grow up have this idea that we can be free of that legacy, right? That I don't, I don't have to be the person that my dad was. Yeah. Um, what everyone, what I think everyone who reads this book can relate to 
is this idea that the push and pull of our parents, right? That we don't want to be like them, right? I don't yeah. want to be like you, but I also love you so much of who you are is me. I, I, you know, the older I get too, I look in the mirror and I see my dad looking back at me and I don't know how to respond. And if someone comes up and says, you don't need any of that, you can, you can just kind of like slice that part of you away and it doesn't exist and you're a wholly new person. I, I understand the appeal of that. Yeah. But I, but as someone who actually was the living example of that experiment, my question is that who is that person? Who? I mean, it's not that what great is of the an person? answer. It's not a great answer. We were abused and neglected, and it yeah. was awful. And every kid in Synanon was abused. I, I, I'm like, like, I get what you're saying, um, and I don't, I don't fault you for for thinking that way because I, I could see where that would be like. Well, maybe that's a, you know, but like, I mean, kids were molested. Kids were locked in closets. Kids were beaten. Right. Kids Obvious, were yeah. ritualistically shamed. Kids were humiliated. Kids were unprotected. Every kid was neglected in some form or another. Every that means neglect is a form of abuse. We didn't have parents. You know, it it was it it was lonely. I mean, I think it's very otherizing to be like, I was born in a cult and put in an orphanage. It sounds like how do you even relate to something like I don't know how to relate to something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. But the the real truth of it was that it was it was lonely. It was hard. It was um and it taught you, you know, certain different kids responded in different ways. My brother responded by becoming a rebel, being angry and sullen. And he was much ways, older. He was older, yeah. And he, and yeah. he, in some ways, his response was kind of more honest, maybe more healthy. I responded by becoming what they call a super child. You know, I'm going to take care of mm -hmm. everyone. I'm going to take mm -hmm. care of mom who's severely depressed, and I'm going to cook for everyone, and I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go and do three hours of chores. I'm going to, you know, I'm jumping ahead, but we later, you know, raised rabbits for, for food because we, we were very poor. We were living on food stamps, and, and I, I was the one who raised and slaughtered the rabbits. I was the one who did, I, I don't know, maybe three to five hours of chores a day when I was eight. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it didn't cross my mind that that wasn't normal. Because that's what I was told. I was told this was the normal thing, I was, and it suited me because um, I was sort of by nature, like, this is what happens to kids in orphanages. You learn to dance. You learn to dance for your supper. You learn to dance for attention. You learn to, because uh, you don't have a parent. You don't have the primary attachment. You don't have any of that. So, you're like, oh, I've got to win this person over. Okay, I'm going to win them over. I'm going to be cute. I'm going to be funny. I'm going to be interact. They're going to be like, look at Kelly's so special. Mm -hmm. And I learned very early on how to make people think I was so special. It's funny. I did this thing with Bob Boylan the other day that uh, on NPR, who Bob Boylan of Tiny Desk fame, who um, I used to do pieces for on NPR when I was on All Things Considered back in another lifetime. And he, um, he and I got into this whole thing about, about that and how, like, why do so many people like that become artists? And I think it's because we're writers and it's because you're so otherized all the time. You're always an observer. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're just sitting back. You feel like everyone else is sharing a reality. I'm not sharing. And all I'm doing is trying to look at all the faces and try to figure out what's required of me. And I think immigrants feel that way a lot of the time. I definitely think child, children of addiction, children of abuse um, feel that way. I think racism functions that way in, 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 some, in some ways. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, you're just otherized. And so what are you doing? You're, you're putting on a mask. You're putting on a show. And that's what I learned to do. And I, I rode that for a long, long time in my life. Like probably till I was like 27, 28 years old. I, I was just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outwork this thing.
you know, but the, the short answer is it sucked. We were abused. So here you are, this kind of, you know, product of an experiment that says you don't need a family. And then you're pulled from it, you know, when you're when you're young. Uh, your mom basically just kind of pulled you and your brother and, and got the fuck out, like escaped. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so much of the rest of your childhood, your parents are, uh, are not together. So you're going back and forth between your mom and you're starting to get to know who your dad was. And yeah. so much of your childhood is this attempt to gain back that thing that was ripped away from you you know, when, when you were a child, which is family, family. this idea of family. Like, yep. What is a family? What does it mean to be a family? It's a constant um, issue um, in the book. There's this line that you have where you, you say the word family, the word seems to me like a cave, something big and simple you can walk inside to get away from a storm called loneliness. Talk to me about that. What is what is the, the connection between family and loneliness for you as a, as a child? Well, I think at that point we're in Salem, Oregon. That's the chapter that is about the AA campouts that we go to because my stepfather, my first stepfather had moved in. He was a dear man, but he was a, he was a severe alcoholic. And we would go to AA meetings up in the woods at Detroit Lake, which was um, east of uh, Salem, Oregon, up in the mountains there. Uh, in the Cascades. It was beautiful. And we would have these mm -hmm. big meetings. And A, storytellers are great storytellers. Like the best storytellers in the world, some of the best storytellers are, are they're not doing TED Talks. They're, they're at an AA meeting. They yeah. know how to land a joke. They understand an intro. You know what I mean? They understand how to mm -hmm. finish. And, and we sat there for years just going up to these campouts and listening to these guys talk about, you know, um, their stories, which were filled with abuse and, you know, drinking and drugs and, you know, guns and all kinds of crazy stuff. So, I mean, there's, if you're going to be a writer, there are worse ways to grow up <laughs> than to be forever exposed to these like crazy fucking stories that you don't bat an eye. At nine years old, I could have told you what like child protective services was and like what a 22 bullet looked like, you know. <laughs> well, as a, ma as a matter of fact, you, uh, there are these sort of great moments where you, um, practice repeating certain oh, yeah, sentences yeah. and lines that yeah. you, people say, right? Like just the well, way the men, that they say it, the we had rhythm. A sing, we had a single mom for a long time before the stepdad. And, and I think if you're the sons of a single mom, there's this, I don't use the word toxic masculinity in the book because it's not something I understood at that age. And, and um, that isn't really what the book's about. But there is this notion that, um, you know, uh, we're, we're sort of inventing what a man is as we grow up. And a lot of that just gets based usually on your father or a rejection of your father. And we, there were just no mm. men around. We knew the world of women. We knew like yeah. when our mom would talk to her friend Debbie and they would play cards and discuss like who she was going to maybe start dating. And she would show up in the room one day and she'd have makeup on and we knew she was going on a date. And you have to understand, we knew how desperately she wanted a husband. We knew it. We felt it. And that's a real thing. Like, I mean, here she is. She's, I think, 37. She's got two kids. She's escaped a cult. She's penniless. She's got some mental health issues. And, and she's lonely. And she's lonely. And we knew that loneliness. And, and you understand, that wasn't necessarily the best thing for us to know because it taught us a few things. One, it, we, had, we were fascinated by men, too. Who are these hairy beasts that show up and, and like, have trucks and know how to go hunting and fishing and they can throw us in the air and they've got muscles and beards and weird hair patterns because you know whatever 
like that that was a weird thing and then also i think later in life we we sort of knew something about the internal world of women in a way that maybe wasn't even good for us you know maybe we mm-hmm. we identified so strongly that sometimes may i would say i probably stayed in a few relationships i should have left cuz i just was so worried about hurting you know the person i was with and you could say oh there's worse things i agree i'm just saying what it did was it taught me not to think about my own needs. It was like one of many things that sort of taught me that. So anyways, the, the point I'm sort of driving at is when it comes to family, a lot of what we did was play act. A lot of what we did early on was, okay, you're the mom. Okay. And that guy's the dad this week. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this week he's the dad. Okay. All right. So if one of you, and we're the kids. So what does that mean? What's what are our relationships to each other? Cause we didn't know. You have to understand we were in the orphanage. And yeah. in the orphanage, we well, have parents. And so when this woman, we were told there was this woman named Mom, when she showed up to get us, it did, the, the name didn't have any particular meaning. We didn't know. We were we hardly saw her. We saw her once every few weeks for a few hours. Was it? So mm-hmm. we were always trying to invent it. We were always trying to, we were always sort of fascinated by it. And I think my brother and I were always felt like outsiders looking in. In a way that like now, as an adult, as a parent, I have two kids like, you know, I I see my kids every day. I pick them up every day. I, I'm a dad. I love being a dad. It's a different thing. We had no instincts about that. None. We just didn't. The whole thing was a fucking mystery to us. Your mom, as you sort of now recognize, had um, narcissistic personality disorder. Um, had, you know, created obviously a very toxic uh, parent-child relationship. One in which you were told constantly that it was your job to take care of her. Um, and one in which you had to constantly deny your emotions, your experience of things, right? Um, you just talked about a little while ago that pivotal moment in which you saw <clears throat> Phil, this man that you loved, being beaten almost to death by these scary men who your mom told you was were coming for you. And... The remarkable thing about that story is that when you told your mom what happened, she told you, no, you didn't see that. You weren't there. You didn't experience that. When you told your mom you were sad, she would say, no, you're not sad. You're you're happy. You're fine. Everything is great. This, this constant sense of your emotions are wrong. Right. What you think is happening isn't happening. Right. Right. Um, I mean, that's got to create a, a kind of almost schizophrenia you know, growing up, like you don't even know, like, am I, is reality really what, what I think is happening? Is my experience of reality true or not? Are these emotions, am I mislabeling them? Yeah, it was tricky to write about that because I, I, I wanted to write from the emotional perspective that I had at the time. Um, cause I didn't, but I didn't have words for it. I have to understand this, like the words narcissistic personality disorder. I don't think I ever uttered those words till about five years ago. Mm-hmm. All I knew was, you know, maybe as an adult I'd figured out, okay, something's kind of not right over here. Um, but as a kid, I didn't know any of that stuff. I just knew, all right, mom thinks this, which is weird because I kind of think this other thing's true, and it creates this schism, and which is that I experienced something, and I'm being told I didn't experience it. So what does that teach me? Um, it teaches me to lie. It teaches me that people can lie. It teaches me the depth of lies that people can tell. It teaches me that you are sort of capable of creating a reality that doesn't sort of coexist. You can you can create an emotional reality that's easier to handle than the one that actually exists. That's a that's a hell of a thing to teach a kid. <laughs> and so you know, 
I talk about these things in the book from the perspective of the eight-year-old and the ten-year-old going through it. But I now understand it. It was a, it was emotional abuse. I mean, that was that was, was that's what it was. It was emotional abuse. And yeah. and I and I try. I feel like um, when I talk about her, it's I don't I don't want to I don't want to put her down. It's hard to explain. It's hard because I I don't feel like I want anyone who hasn't read the book to come away thinking that my mom was a monster because she wasn't. Um, she was. She's not who, the villain of this story. No, um, she's someone who struggled with um, uh, mental illness, depression, and um, NPD, BPD, cluster B kind of stuff, um, and also had a very hard life. And I think both those things can be true. And there's this desire to collapse these things in our culture. This person's an abuser. This person's a good person. This person mm-hmm. does everything right. This person does everything wrong. And it's horseshit. That's just like not how the world works. And so. Um, I sort of feel like when you read the book, that's really clear. It's really clear and that it's possible for me to love her, even though I don't think she was very good at loving me, which is kind of the perspective I land mm-hmm. on by the end of the book. Um, but I, I want to be very clear for people who haven't read the book. I don't want to villainize her. It's not my, it's not my goal. I don't think that's, I don't think it's fair to her. It's also not true. It's also way more complex than that, you know? And so I don't want to yeah. try to reduce, reduce it to these kind of, these kind of tropes. Still, I don't think your mom comes across as the villain in the story, but your dad comes across as the hero in the story. He was a great guy. And of course, your dad, yeah, is a great guy. But I mean, you do recognize how much of that has to do with just kind of that bond that you were desperate for, right? I mean, you're you're with a mom who brings a bunch of men into your life and says, this is your dad, you know, this is your dad now. Now we're like a family. And then a week later, the guy's gone. Two, yeah. two months later, he's gone. Yeah. But you do have a dad and he's in a different place. And, you know, he's got his own issues, as you say, you know, he was a, he was a drug addict. And, um, but I, I wonder, like, did your perspective on your parents and who they were change when you sat down to write about Yeah, them? of course. I mean, I, absolutely. Um, I, I, um, my dad, what you have to understand about my dad, so he was clean my whole life. He's never, he never got a parking ticket the entire time I was alive. So all of his criminal or drug history was before I was born. So I never saw it. It was always just this kind of mythology. And my brother and I would trade the mythology, like the little trading cards. We'd stay up late at night and be like, you know, dad was in a Mexican prison and, you know, he, he busted out and he did. He got sentenced to five years in a Mexican prison and they paid off a judge and one day, a bunch of people let him out of his doors and uh, let him out of his cell and then the next and the next and then eventually he went out into the street and he walked across the border you know um there's a million stories like this that we had about our father he, he carried a sawed off shotgun for for mm-hmm. 10 years he one time he he had a vw bus and he crashed it into a wall and it collapsed like an accordion around him and he thought he was going to be dead and it just and then he kind of looked around like and then he, he climbed <laughs> out and then he went home and he reported it stolen <laughs> <laughs> he called the cops and said someone stole my car. <laughs> See, but this is the perfect story. So you hear when when you hear this about your dad and your 13 right well i was five it's 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 the best story you've ever heard and your dad is a hero about it most you know the experience of growing up for the vast majority of us i would say 
perhaps a little bit more, you know, for sons than daughters. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm not. A, I only, I'm only a son, so I'm, I don't have the other perspective. But is this idea that the the process of growing old is realizing that your parents aren't who you who you thought they were? I know. I hear what you're right? saying, and I that is definitely something I I had to deal with with my mom because my mom really was a difficult person to be with. Mm-hmm. But you have to understand about my dad. He really was just a great guy. And by great guy, I don't mean he was funny and masculine. He was those things too. He was mm-hmm. warm. He was wise. Everybody, mm-hmm. everybody knew this about him. The kids on the street knew him. The family knew it. My brother knew it. Probably my mom knew it. Uh, he just had this way with people. He'd seen yeah. everything. He'd, he'd gotten clean off heroin. He'd helped a lot of other people gotten clean off heroin. There's a ton of people that say, Jim Gillet saved my life. And he was just affectionate kind, warm, would give us the shirt off his back, would probably give anybody the shirt off his back, called his mother every day, was really good to, he was like, he was like good in these ways Mm -hmm. that are just really easy to understand as good. Gentle, affectionate, funny, warm, non-judgmental, and you could, he's this masculine guy that worked on cars and liked football, you know, but he fucking hated Republicans. (laughs) You know, like, and he was sort of, so like, I guess politically, you know, he, he was pretty astute. Um, he liked Hillary Clinton. I mean, I don't know for like this big masculine dude. Like he was always like, they give her too much shit. She's a smart lady. Like he was, he was, he wasn't that. And at one point, you know, he quit his job to take care of me because he knew I needed to be taken care of when I was moved up with them and let uh, my mom Bonnie, who's my stepmom, but we don't use the S word in my family. My mom Bonnie worked because her her career was was taking off, and he was fine with it. Mm-hmm. And that's tough yeah, he stayed for home. a really masculine yeah. man. You know, who, and he was fine. He was proud of her. He said, She's so good at what she does. She's so good at her career. She's, you know, she's going to be a breadwinner. She's taking care of everyone. He was fine with it. And he would, and when I talked to him, he would reason with me about my life. He'd say, You know, I'd say, Dad, this thing happened. I don't know. He's like, Well, you know, maybe you got to gotta let it go. I don't, and then other times, be like, You got a problem there. You're going to have to deal with this guy because otherwise it's going to come back. And you got, and he just had this way about him that I think everyone saw is good. I'm not saying that he was perfect he was not a perfect person um what i'm saying is that what i actually got to know as i got older was this guy i'd been told was kind of a grifter i'd been told was an addict that i'd been told had walked out on us no he just divorced our mom and you know what he probably divorced her because she was bad at being married to him because she had mental illness and it was probably and we were told because of that he was this terrible guy and he wasn't he was actually just a gem of a human being i mean I, i you know it was sort of like, and that was the reciprocity I wanted to happen in the book. I wanted there to be this moment where, you know, you go from thinking, oh, the mom's going to be the hero. I think by the end of chapter three, you probably think my mom's going to be the hero of the book. And that my dad's like this shady character off that kind of ran out. And then there's this slow, like 150 page arc where you start to realize, right. oh my God, she's, there's some, this isn't right. And then yeah. you see this person come in, my dad come in and be like, wow, those are that's pretty solid, Jim. All right. Good, good, good. And, I, and that's what I wanted. I wanted it to, because that's how I discovered it in my own life. You're a dad now. You've got a son. You've got a daughter. Um, what did what did your dad teach you about being a dad that is with you now? Do you do you interact with your kids and 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 recognize your dad in yourself oh, yeah. for good or for bad? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, my dad was real good at just taking joy in us. He just loved having his boys around. He, and, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know how that concept for me is the most important one of parenting. I don't know why exactly that's true, but that's true. Because they were absent from your, from your early life. I mean. But it also, 
taking joy in your kids speaks to so many other things that have to exist first. You, that means you also have to not be putting tremendous pressure on them to be like you, to not be like you, to achieve something, to not to avoid something. It means you're also making sure that they have appropriate boundaries in their life, that their boundaries expand as they get older. I mean, it's a complex equation, but at mm -hmm. the at the core of it is there's a relationship there in which we're just I just love being around him. We have lots of little jokes. Um, my my baby girl, we already have little jokes, and she's you know five months old, and I I wouldn't I don't know if I got that from my dad. I feel like I got a really good playbook for being a dad from my father mm. that I got later in life. I mean, I had somebody interview I did an interview last week, and someone was like, well, you know, at three years old, what was your dad like? And I was like, oh, I was in an orphanage, <laughs> you know, I'm, I couldn't tell you what it was like. So, you know, um, uh, yeah, I feel like I have I have a playbook in my head. I can talk to him. I can ask him questions, and um, I feel I feel like as a parent, maybe there's something too about um, you know my dad's a real masculine dude, um, and like I I will like right over here. If you were to look off camera, there is a homemade prison style weightlifting gym, like literally a bench press, <laughs> and then a '66 Chevy, a bunch of guitar amps, you know, some dumbbells and shit. I just like my my circular saw, my screw gun, like it's all just like whatever. So we're like in yeah. that way. Man stuff. Man, Man stuff. stuff. But like, you know, I'm very affectionate with my son. You know, he he, he comes upstairs, says snuggle with daddy. And then we sit and we watch a movie together and he just mm. snuggles up on me. And my dad was like that too. He's very affectionate with us. And so I never saw this contra like as it some sort of contradiction between masculinity and kindness. For me, it was mm -hmm. always just one thing. That'd be like, yeah. yeah, you're kind of both. You're masculine and you're kind. You're masculine and you're not a dick. You're masculine and you support the woman in your life and you honor that relationship in your life. And these are things my dad, like he had eighth grade education and he was in prison and he was a heroin addict, but he knew some profound things. Yeah. Hey there everyone, it's Reza. I'm sorry for the interruption. I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're enjoying this episode, well then, you're in luck my friends, because Rough Draft is also a TV show. And you can watch it all right now, along with topics, other original series, and exclusive programming from around the world. You can check it out for free on the Apple TV app, which is already on your favorite devices. With Apple TV, you can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can even share your subscription with up to six family members with family sharing, which is what I do because I have a gigantic family. Go to apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. That's apple.co slash topic. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, let's talk about writing. Let's get let's get back to writing, shall we? Uh, it's not just a book; it's an album, uh, which I honestly cannot stop listening to. I'm just obsessed with it. I I I just love it. I want to talk a little bit about the way in which 
Um, and we're gonna talk. We'll we'll dig dig deep into the into the music for a second. But the way in which the book influenced the album and and vice versa, right? I mean, um, the book came first, right? Uh, there was sort of. I think I might have written a couple songs for the record first, but it was all kind of simultaneous. It wasn't really simultaneous. I think from the outside, these things. We'll talk about like that decisions. process. So like you would. There wasn't a decision. What, what, it was just instinct. I just kind of decided yeah. to write a song, and then I decided to write a book, and then it then halfway through the book, I wanted to write some more songs, and then I realized. I needed to finish the book, and then I was like, oh, I got to finish the record, and then when it was all over, I was like, oh, yeah, I made a book, and then I made a record that was the soundtrack to the book, but that's not how I experienced it. I just sort of experienced it as, like, works of art that had to be made in the world because I couldn't sit with them in my own head. They had to be externalized. But were there, there were moments in which you would write a scene, and then you would think to yourself, there's another way to express this. There's yeah. another way to, to put this down, and it, there's prose, and there's music, and, and you know... So uh, uh, here's a there's, there's a great example of this. I'm just going to read it. This is kind of the end of the um, the first section here, and this is this is a a moment just to catch everybody up in which um, the your mom's kind of newest boy, um, newest dad, um, uh, beats the shit out of you, and and you run away, and your um, and Salem, Oregon, and you're and you're kind of looking down uh, at this at this bridge, wondering if maybe you should jump. Uh, I'll just read this moment here. I see the faces of the women and men in their cars, staring at the boy smoking a cigarette alone on the West Salem Bridge on a Sunday night. I know there is nowhere to run and no place to sleep. I think the house is an illusion. Under it is frozen ground beneath that lake of black water. I can disappear in the current like a rock falling off a bridge. The boys in those cars on their way to Sunday dinner to mashed potatoes and pot roast rolls with butter. I feel sorry for them. I am a shadow. I am the shadow of a shadow. It feels good to let the nothingness fill me. What breaks your fall? I toss a rock and watch it arc over the river and disappear. I know how the conversation will go if I go home. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Come on, out with it. You don't deserve to know. You smell like cigarettes. Did you steal them? Are you drinking? You know you're at risk for becoming an alcoholic. It's a family disease. Yes, I know that. Tell me the truth. Don't you lie to me, mister. The truth, the truth, the truth. Come on, out with it. I don't have an answer. No words make sense. Paul is dead. Doug is a monster. The house is an illusion. There is only this frozen ground, this river of black water, this empty well, this blankness, these ghosts. Nothing to do but forget about shelter and become the storm. You finish writing this moment, and do you think to yourself, "There's a, there's another emotion that that I have to express," and then you pull out a guitar? <laughs> I think um, I it was more that I had a an arrangement for a song that I liked, um, and then I um, was I started singing about this moment. And then I went back to the, what I had written and was like, oh, this would make for some good song lyrics. And then there became <laughs> sort of this like back and forth, this kind of interplay. And this happens three or four times in the book and the record where a line from the book is that it just becomes a direct song lyric. Um, uh, but kind of interpreted with a slightly different emotion. Um, and um, uh, yeah, it's it's weird because I, I think there's probably a thousand rules that I have in my head for how I do these things with songwriting, but like as a songwriter, I just I don't I don't know how to analyze them that that well. Uh, mm. I, I like the line. I, I as a writer, I'm I feel way more comfortable 
sort of dissecting, digressing, and bullshitting, and talking, and like it's like that part of my head really, really feels comfortable in words and right. ideas, and feel very facile. Um, with music, it's much more. It's a little bit of a mystery to me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, probably I'm a better writer than musician, um, if I'm really being honest with myself, because we're <laughs> three whiskeys in. Um, but um, I just really love to play music. It's just more fun. And so it's like if you can choose to make part of your life or most of your life or let's say for me the last 12 years of your life, like you get to go on tour and play for thousands of people all the time. What a great choice. You know, <laughs> uh, I just love it. I just love it. And um, having written um, is the only uh, acceptable moment for a writer. Not writing is torture. Writing is torture. Having written. That's the only good moment. For a musician, are you kidding me? Like, you get all kinds of great moments. You're in the studio, you're hanging out with friends, you're doing an acoustic show, you're doing the thing, you're, you know, you get people wanting your autograph, you're singing the show, and everyone's clapping. There's so much more sort of visceral um, kind of feedback. It's a fun world to, yeah. to be in, and as an artist, you get to really experience probably more than anybody else, than actor, unless you're a stage actor. Um, you know, a composer, I don't know, a sculptor, you get to really experience other people enjoying the thing that you made. Um, so I think when I wrote the song, um, yeah, I was just kind of in that world. I don't know why things have to be written. Um, I just felt like it had to be written down because then happens. I could I could externalize yeah. it. I could look at it. I could think about it. I could, I could tell the story in a different way that made emotional sense to me, I guess. Yeah. Can you play a song for us? Oh, yeah. Um, all right, so... Let me get. Let me grab a, a, a tune. So one of the important attributes of being a stage performer, and I've played about 1,500 shows, if you're on stage every night, is to learn how to be able to tell a story while you have to do something technical. Like well, sometimes it is you're, yeah. you're plugging in a guitar, sometimes you're tuning something, sometimes you're checking a mic. Sometimes they just like, the drum head came off and they have to replace the kick drum and you have like two minutes to kill in front of a bunch of people. And so you learn to have these sound bites that fit into exactly the amount of time you have. Black lungs, headlights, heading off to the city tonight out the front door. Turn right, I was alone, alright, alright, alright. I wonder what they'll think of me. I run away, run away. This is my town, my night. Heading off to the city tonight And she said, come on out with it 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 Hard words on a hard night I'll have a beer, won't you turn out the light from the front door? I could hear right, I'm just running dumb, 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 dumb. Wonder if I'll be turning back. I got 20 bucks in a pocket with my stash. I'm not afraid, I'm not your good night. 
I'm just a shadow of the shadows tonight And she said, come on out with it 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 Shadows watching, the darkness approaching You came for life in the park So you stand on the stage at such a young age As you're feeling around in the dark And your mother, she's calling You feel your hopes falling There's nowhere to run to tonight just the fist on your face now You hope to replace how The emptiness fills you inside Break my fall Break my fall Break my fall Break my fall, break my fall. Please break my fall Break my fall Come on out with it 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 Put me back in Nice I love that song. It's like it's like this thing that just like plays in my head constantly, like when I'm trying to sleep. I'm very sorry. And do about other that, things. Really. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> um when you were talking about the different ways in which, you know, music happens, music writing happens as opposed to prose writing, it reminded me of a quote from Bowie in your book. You you get to live everybody's fantasy which is you get to uh, be in a room at the same time with David Bowie. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're a journalist, you're a music, music journalist, and, and you're interviewing him. And he says this thing where he's talking about the difference between writing prose, right? And writing, and writing songs, yeah. right? writing music. This is, this is what he says. I think a prose writer can articulate ideas in a more straightforward way. But with a musician... The words are like a plaster that I lay on this armature of music. That's David Bowie saying armature yep. of music, everybody. I don't see the words as carrying thoughts particularly. It's more like an array of feathers which produce a pattern. And the totality of that pattern set against this armature of music is enough to express what I'm feeling. Hmm. Goddamn. <laughs> like, I mean, goddamn, right? I mean, he was pretty Jesus. good. David Bowie. Is that how, is that the, the experience is like for you, the difference between sitting down at your computer, writing prose, writing scenes and trying to, and then, and then the, the difference with that and writing music, which is instead 
this plaster, right? This plaster on the armature of music. It, what, what's, what's the experience like for you, the difference between those two ways of writing? I mean, I think it, when it comes right down to it, David Bowie's just a better musician. I mean, I, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not being like falsely humble when I say that. I, th I think a lot of my music um, career is based on being able to write good lyrics. And I think I think in complete sentences. I think in terms of stories. I think in terms of story arc. And um, I feel, um, you know, so when I sit down to do it, a lot of times I am actually just trying to wrestle with the problem and trying to put it to a melody and arrangement and a score for the lyrics. Um, but that isn't really what music is. I mean, I love Bon Iver. I have, I have no fucking idea what that guy's talking about. I, <laughs> no idea. None. But it's great. But I mean, I, I, that's not a diss on him. He's a great musician. You know, yeah. uh, M83 is um, amazing. I don't know what the fuck M83 is talking about. I have no idea. And so I think when we talk, this is why they say like, you know, writing about music's like dancing about architecture. Like we, mm -hmm. we we don't really have a language for what music's really doing. And I think what it's really doing isn't actually expressing just, you know, a melody and a lyric, and you know, then you remember a thing. It's that we. It's a very efficient form of communication. Melody, the rise and fall of a voice, the delivery, the rhythm of the delivery, which is also extremely important, right. um, is something we're used to hearing. And so. Um, you know, two million years of human evolution has been spent, you know, telling stories around a, a fire, um, singing songs about our, um, and, you know, at one point it was to make, you know, to understand our ancestors, or maybe it was to make tools or something like the The whole point is it's all sort of heuristic uh, for us to understand story through song. And it's more than just what's being said. I'd say 80% of it's how it's being said. And so mm. um, if I was to stop and analyze myself, I think I think like a writer. And it probably explains why I, I, I personally, I think I'm a better writer than musician. Like I, I just feel way more comfortable with words. I just feel like, okay, let's, we're gonna write an essay. We're gonna write a screenplay. We're gonna write a novel. We're gonna write a memoir. We're gonna write right, We're gonna write. Okay, I got you. Shut up. I'm gonna write. Like as a musician, I feel, I feel kind of like a charlatan, and I feel mm -hmm. lucky to have the career that I have. I feel lucky that people want to hear what I have to say. I feel lucky that I get to show up and, and sing songs and stuff. But. Um, so I think when he when he says those things, he has probably a more profound understanding of it than I do. Well, my whiskey glass is empty, which means it's time for the five questions. <laughs> All right, you ready? Five questions. Here we go with Mikel Jolet. Number one, what is your favorite book? Beloved. If I, if, Why? If I quickly, uh, Tony Morrison. Um, you know, brilliant, vexing, probing, interesting, no holes in her game, best American writer. You can make an argument for Philip Roth of the 20th century, but they're neck and neck. They're neck and neck. And right now, I, I think I would probably 10 years ago would have leaned towards Roth, and now I probably lean towards Toni Morrison mm. just because I recognize such a crazy like humanity uh, in how she writes and how she's really willing to, to take the interior worlds of people who have lived 150 years ago going through this generational trauma of slavery and make it visceral and real and present for me in a way that I understand now, um, uh, having never lived these people's experiences. And so I, I just, I, she's also just fucking, she just makes beautiful paragraphs. So yeah. What is your writing process? And let's talk about songwriting, not prose writing. What's your songwriting process? Oh, I'm an edge of the bed, you know, kind of guy. I'm a, I'm a like grab a guitar, um, sit on the edge of the bed. I'm working on a song right now. And Do you like, start with melody? Do you start with a line, a chorus? 
Alright, so I just wrote this new song, and all I did was I started this line, and it goes like this. It was, um, what do you think about getting old? Do you think you're just to do what you're told? Did you ever think maybe you could be so bold and decide to never die? One more. That's what I heard about Jesus Christ. He was born in a barn and he got to live twice. Then they murdered him for being too nice and he went to a throne in the sky. All right, so I wrote, I wrote that song. Uh, sorry, I wrote that line and then I thought, okay, what's the song? Because I like that line. I like this whole like, yeah, they murdered like him for being too nice. Uh, somebody told some lies in here. I'm going to sort of set up from the start that your belief in him has something to do with your fear of death. Um, I, I like those lines. I just they just kind of came out. I don't know where they came from. And then the writer in me was like, okay, so what do we what do we do with that? How do we answer the question? And the question is, what song starts with those two lines? And then I spent you know probably five days just doing that, just chasing. <laughs> all right, what's the song that comes from those those two lines? That and and just playing it over and over again, thinking it through, writing, rewriting, writing, rewriting, writing, rewriting. Yeah. Uh, if you weren't a writer. What would you be? And you can't say musician. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, if you would ask me five years ago, I would have. I would thought about running for city council in L.A. I thought about politics. A politician. I don't know though. I'm too much of a. I just <laughs> like I'm. I, I'm not always. I'm. How do I put this? Um, I don't know if I could live. The you don't life. have the discipline. The I don't discipline. Know if I, no, I'm pretty disciplined. It's not even that. I think I would hate it. I think I could win. I really do. I think I'm pretty good mm-hmm. at giving speeches. And, you know, you, 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 you have a certain – anyone who's ever run for office also has this artistic side. I've noticed there's kind of this push-pull between, like, I have to create an identity, tell a story to people, be good at performing, and get them to then like me. It's, it's the thought process Barack Obama goes through. It's also the thought process Bruce Springsteen goes through. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce Springsteen went through and and there's something similar about them being kind of like vexed people who are sort of solving the emotional problems in life with this huge abyss of of a need for the approval of others and I have that thing so I think I could win Hmm. I just think I'd hate it I just think like the minute I started city council or and then in my mind like well if I want city council I could probably run for mayor it's only LA it's not that hard and then like all right I'd be mayor of LA then well I guess I could run for governor well all right and like I had that thought like maybe five years ago and like and I just thought like okay the the running would be one thing but then you got to do it and then you got to sit there and they have that council meetings and they're so fucking boring and you got to be somewhere at eight. 8 a.m. I'm still in bed or I'm or I'm writing a song how am I gonna write the next record. (laughs) I'm not gonna write my dystopian novel if I'm at a fucking city council meeting listening to like zoning ordinances and shit. And I was like, all right, fuck it that. Sounds okay. like yeah. worst, like, it sounds like the worst life. It sounds like the worst life. Like, hey, why don't you run for office? And I'm oh. like, that sounds awful. Also, Horrible. because I want to get things done. Right. And also, it's like, <laughs> why would you want to wake up and have that be your life, and then have yeah. that be how you spent your day? Like, just like the rubber chicken lunches. You know, the rubber chicken circuit. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's like we'd like oh, to yeah. thank Bob for his career and service to the sanitation. You know, it's all very. <laughs> it's all a lot more Parks and Rec than it yeah, is. Yeah, that, it's, you it's know, not a good life. Yeah. All right. Question number four. What is the worst writing advice that you've ever been given? Oh God. Music, prose, any kind of writing. The worst writing advice that I've ever been given. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I, I think um, 
what I will say is there's this idea that exists in writing, songwriting, as well as prose writing, that somehow your first draft is, is supposed to be like great. There's just that everyone's trying to be Mozart. There's a Mozart complex where it's like, am I, am I a generational talent? Am I the once in a generation guy? Like young writers or young musicians will ask yeah. me this sometimes. They're just starting out and they'll be like, and like, I just want you to hear my song and tell me if I'm any good. And I want to be like, I'll tell you right now, it sucks. <laughs> I don't even need to hear it. I can tell you it sucks. Do it for five years every day. Write a thousand more songs or 20 more short stories or 50 more essays or whatever it is. And then like you're going to get better at it. And that's that's really what it is. You can you know you, if you're a mediocre writer, you can become a pretty good writer. If you're a pretty good writer, you can become a very good writer. And if you're already a good writer, maybe you can become a great writer. And like you, it, it's gonna take time and practice and fucking editing, editing and editing and editing. Like I, my my book, I I did thirteen drafts before I ever sent yeah. it to an agent or a literary house or anything, and they wouldn't have accepted the first draft. Well, you, it sounds like you answered the the final question, which is what's the best writing advice you can give, which is just write, right? Yeah. Just write. Read. Actually, I would read. say read. Um, yeah, I, I can't write unless I'm reading. I read about when I'm writing. I read about four hours a day. Um, I get really into books. I get really into ideas. I f- it feels like a tank I'm filling up, and then the next morning when I write, the tank kind of empties out, and then tank, and 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 these things are not as. Um, they're not as one-to-one logical as they might seem. There's something that happens when you read a lot and you live in the world of ideas and you engage that part of your brain where writing can come from a place that you don't expect. And I don't know if that happens with music or not, but with reading it definitely happens. Like, you know, Vonnegut talks about reading as these Buddhist catnaps. You have your <laughs> moment of sort of like you're almost like a meditation where you're reading a book and, and pretty soon your mind and the, and, the, and the writer's mind become melded. So, you know, if you want to be a writer, there's worse things you can do than melding your mind with great writers every day for a long time. And editing, 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 and more editing. The book is called Hollywood Park, and it's also a companion album. They're both fantastic. Mikhail Jolet, thank you so much thank for you, Reza. being on Rough Draft Live. Thank you so much to my guest, Mikhail Jolet. You can buy the book Hollywood Park at any bookstore and download the album Hollywood Park on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to your music. You can also follow him on his socials at Mikkel, that's M-I-K-E-L, underscore Jolet, J-O-L-L-E-T-T. This episode of Rough Draft was originally put on by the 92nd Street Y, so thank you to everyone at the 92nd Street Y. Keep supporting live events as much as you can, people, and join us on the next episode of Rough Draft. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Rough Draft is a topic original series hosted by me, Reza Aslan. Executive produced by Reza Aslan, David Andrioni, Alfredo De Villa, and Safa Samizadeh Yazd. Executive producers for Topic are Ryan Chanitry, Anna Holmes, and Gina Konstantinakos, with production aid from Russell Sperberg. Our music and theme is by Jacob Snyder, sound by Sean Oakley, editing and mixing by Will Stanton, with additional editing by Blake V. You can follow Rough Draft on Twitter at Rough Draft Reza, on Facebook at Rough Draft with Reza Aslan, or you can email us at roughdraftpodcast at topic.com. You can also follow me, Reza Aslan, at Reza Aslan. For transcripts and a list of full credits, go to topic.com slash rdpodcast. 
If you love this interview, be sure to check out our TV show, as well as Topic's original series and exclusive programming from around the world. Try it for free on the Apple TV app already on your favorite devices. You can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can also share your subscription between up to six family members with family sharing. That's what I do. Go to apple.co slash topic, that's apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Rough Draft. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.